The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. It's as if he's trying to get subpoenaed. This is Thursday, August 16th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Well, these days, the top story doesn't change much. The United States remains under attack from Russia, and there is still no coordinated effort to stop it. A warning bell was sounded by two Florida senators, a Democrat and a Republican. Democratic Senator Bill Nelson was the first to sound the alarm that Russian hackers have already penetrated the voter registration systems in several Florida counties ahead of this year's election. Florida state officials, Republicans under Governor Rick Scott, say this is the first they've heard of it and that Nelson needs to provide evidence. Scott says Nelson is making stuff up. It should be noted that Governor Scott is running to unseat Democrat Nelson in the midterm election that's now less than 90 days away. Senator Nelson, along with his Republican colleague Marco Rubio, sent a letter to Florida's county election commissioners six weeks ago recommending they take advantage of the security help being offered by Homeland Security. They didn't. So, because the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee had asked him to do so, Bill Nelson got a bit more specific. Intelligence Committee Chairman Republican Richard Burr and co-chair Mark Warner, a Democrat, had asked Nelson and Rubio to notify Florida's county election supervisors that Russian operatives have penetrated the registration computers this year. Florida election officials, meanwhile, continue to insist they've heard nothing about this from Homeland Security or the FBI or anyone else. But now, two county officials say they were warned about this back in May from Senator Rubio, who was himself the target of Russian hacking in 2016 and who's also a member of the Intelligence Committee. According to the Mueller indictment of a dozen Russian intelligence officers, their operatives posed as a vendor in over a hundred phishing emails sent to election officials in multiple Florida counties. The emails contained malware that would allow manipulation of the computerized registration lists. Eliminate a voter? Eliminate a vote. You can imagine the chaos, said Senator Nelson, when voters go to the polls and they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, you're not registered. The Russians, he says, are in your records and all they have to do is go in and start eliminating voters. And Florida is a crucial swing state for the nation. Now, both of Florida's senators and both leaders of the Intelligence Committee, Republicans and Democrats, say the Russians are back. And, says Senator Nelson in his latest warning, they now have free reign to move about. All 67 of Florida's counties have spent considerable time and money on stepping up election security and they're preparing to accept federal help now. But Rubio has said he thinks the state's election officials are overconfident that they're underestimating Russia's cyber abilities. He thinks county officials are ill-equipped to counter a Russian state. Florida's election officials say Rubio's remarks were vague and contained no advice on exactly what to watch for or how to deal with it. Neither Rubio nor Nelson can be more specific because much of what they know is classified and part of an ongoing investigation. Rolling Stone reports today that the FBI is investigating an email phishing effort to hack a Democrat who ran against California Republican Dana Rohrabacher. Rohrabacher served 15 consecutive terms and is known by his own colleagues as, quote, Putin's favorite congressman. Previously considered to be Rohrabacher's chief Democratic challenger was Dr. Hans Kirstead, who failed to make it to the general election 
by 125 votes. The FBI won't say who or what nation it suspects was behind the attack. Kirstead ran on an anti-Trump platform. As expected, the Russian attack continues. Our response continues to falter from a lack of coordination. After clumsily admitting last week that the June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower between Russians and Trump's son, son-in-law, and campaign manager was about getting damaging information on Clinton, Trump has now changed his story on collusion. He was effectively accidentally confessing to collusion between his campaign and Russia. For a year and a half, Trump's been insisting there was no collusion in tweet after tweet after tweet. In a tweet this past week, Trump declared no collusion to the best of my knowledge. Observers say it looks like Trump got coached by a lawyer for that tweet, adding for the first time, to the best of my knowledge. In that tweet, Trump was admitting that there may have been collusion between his campaign and Russia, but that he didn't know about it. That, too, is in doubt based on Trump's public request to Russia during the campaign to find Clinton's emails, something Russia did that same day. Robert Mueller wants to ask Trump about that, about why he dictated a false statement about that Trump Tower meeting and why he's now hedging on his claim of no collusion. It became clear that Trump has no intention of answering questions from special counsel Robert Mueller and that perhaps he never did. For quite a while, the White House insisted the president was eager to be interviewed to get this Russia thing cleared up while his lawyers and Mueller negotiated the terms of that interview. Or at least Trump's lawyers went through the motions of negotiating terms for something they never wanted Trump to do under any terms because the guy they know is the guy we know. The negotiations have gone on for eight months now. The latest counteroffer is from Trump's lawyers, and although we don't know exactly what's in that offer, it's been widely reported they've insisted that no questions be asked about possible obstruction of justice. They're also insisting that Mueller show them any evidence he has against Trump before the president will even agree to sit for that interview. That's an offer that Mueller has to refuse since the purpose of the Trump interview is to wrap up the obstruction investigation and to publish a report. And Mueller does not have to divulge information from an ongoing investigation. Conventional wisdom says Mueller won't make any big moves after Labor Day since that's considered the start of the campaign season for every seat in the House and over a third of the 100 Senate seats that are up for grabs. As a Justice Department employee, Mueller is sworn not to make public anything that might influence an election outcome, and Mueller's reputation is that of a guy who plays by the rules, unlikely to go the James Comey route. Trump's lawyers are all in for that conventional wisdom. If Mueller does in fact lay low for two months, that leaves him unable to make significant moves for a while, and it means Mueller has just over two weeks now to get that interview. The only other alternatives? End the obstruction probe without Trump's testimony, or continue these fruitless negotiations and make a move after the midterm election, which is what Trump reportedly wants. Or Mueller can subpoena the president which would set off a political battle and a year-long legal fight. It would reportedly take 10 months for the subpoena fight to land before the Supreme Court, which would then be presumably occupied by a solid conservative majority, including a new justice who believes a president should not be subpoenaed. On the political side, Trump's reportedly hoping for a subpoena, hoping for a subpoena that he can refuse, hoping to use that to motivate Republican voters to save the president on November 6th. 
To many voters, however, a subpoena refused by Trump would underscore the belief that he's hiding something. Big. Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, says he sees no reason for an interview, claiming that Mueller already knows Trump's answers. We're waiting to hear how Mueller will respond to Team Trump's offer and what Mueller's response will be. For now, that mystery is part of Mueller's leverage. Mueller got a bit of a boost this week from a federal judge who had been appointed by Trump. D.C. District Court Judge Danny Friedrich Monday became the fourth judge to rule that the Mueller probe and the way it's being conducted are constitutional and legitimate, turning away challenges that it's not. Now, does Mueller really need the Trump interview? Yes, say most prosecutors who admit they're just as blind as the rest of us about what evidence Mueller does or does not have. But experienced prosecutors say that unless Mueller does have something we don't know about, his obstruction case against Trump is mostly circumstantial, even if it is voluminous. And without Trump's testimony, they say that isn't quite enough. And Mueller has two weeks if he hopes to wrap this up soon and steer clear of the midterms. How will Mueller respond to Team Trump's latest offer, and when? Stay tuned. It was right after Mueller had sent his previous offer that Trump took to Twitter and again barked at his Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Trump wrote, should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. The White House would later say that was an opinion, not an order. Because he is recused from the Russia investigation, Sessions could not and did not act on the president's opinion. Trump would still prefer publicly berating Sessions over firing him, despite urgings from his advisors to dump the guy. That would allow Trump to pick a non-recused attorney general who could end the Russia probe. Although Trump wouldn't mind if Sessions quit, he reportedly believes that firing Sessions would upset his own voter base, which sees Sessions as an anti-immigration hero. In tweets this week, Trump again trolled Sessions, calling him, quote, scared stiff and missing an action. Trump's only defense against the Russia cloud that hangs over him is to slam the Justice Department and the, quote, fake news media. The Trump era's been good for the Republicans in Congress, better than good, for ripping away government regulations and cutting corporate taxes, just as they had been lobbied to do. It's been good to have a president who initiates, allows, and encourages the infringements of rights of immigrants and Muslims, minority citizens, women, and the free press while standing up for religion, heterosexuality, guns, and anti-abortion forces. Republicans in Congress don't want this long-awaited gravy train to derail. California Republican Congressman Devin Nunes, an over-the-top Trump defender, has made it clear that congressional Republicans intend to shut down the Mueller probe. We're the only ones, Nunes told a fundraising crowd. If Sessions doesn't unrecuse and Mueller won't clear the president, said Nunes, we're the only ones. I mean, continued Nunes, we have to keep all these seats. We have to keep the majority. If we do not keep the majority, Nunes said, all of this goes away. Nunes indicated that impeaching Mueller's boss, Rod Rosenstein, is high on the Republican agenda, but only after the election. Nunes indicated that Republicans' top priority at the moment is getting Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court before that election. It's a matter of timing, Nunes said at this fundraiser, not realizing he was being recorded by liberal operatives who had paid the fundraiser's dinner fee. Nunes' remarks were supported by the candidate for whom the fundraiser was being held, Washington Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers. She supported Nunes' remarks, and she's the fourth highest-ranking Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives. 
This, then, is the Republican plan for ending the Mueller investigation and clearing Trump so the gravy train can continue to roll. As for the Mueller probe, this is all political, said Devin Nunes. The confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is nothing short of a holy grail for anti-abortion conservatives. Likely headed for confirmation, Kavanaugh is their best hope at overturning the court's decision that legalized abortion nationwide 45 years ago. Planned Parenthood, founded 100 years ago, has joined forces with other women's and health groups to fight Kavanaugh's confirmation, no matter how improbable victory for them might be. They just need to win the support of two Republicans to win the day, again putting Alaska's Lisa Murkowski and Maine's Susan Collins under pressure, continuing their defense of human rights over the party's passion to confirm Judge Kavanaugh. So far, Murkowski and Collins say they're just not hearing the passion about this issue that they did when the key votes were on health care. An anti-abortion group is trying to persuade Democratic lawmakers in seven states to vote for Kavanaugh, but a majority of Americans believe abortion should be legal. That's been the case for years, and support for safe, legal abortions has actually increased since Kavanaugh's nomination. Pro-choice forces hope lawmakers on both sides are listening. Roger Stone and Donald Trump go back 20, 25 years. Although Stone has no official White House role, he remains one of Trump's closest confidants, as he was during the campaign. And because of Stone's ties to D.C. leaks, WikiLeaks, and the Romanian hacker known as Guccifer 2.0, Stone's become a focus in the Russia investigation. WikiLeaks and DC Leaks and Guccifer were partners in the theft and publication of Democratic emails late in the 2016 campaign season, and Stone had publicly hinted that he knew it was coming a few days before the emails went public. There are emails and photographs confirming Stone's contact with WikiLeaks. So Mueller's investigators are talking to Stone's associates, including his driver, his social media consultant, and a longtime friend, Kristen Davis, the notorious Manhattan madam who runs a who ran a high-end prostitution ring. The one and only Roger Stone associate who refuses to talk is Andrew Miller, who worked for Stone during the 2016 campaign. Miller has gone to great lengths to defy Mueller's subpoena to testify before a grand jury, prompting a judge to find Miller in contempt of court. Although a contempt order can be enforced with jail time, this one will not be, at least not yet. The judge has agreed to stay her order until Miller's lawyers can appeal her decision in a higher court. Miller's lawyers say they wanted the contempt charge just so they could appeal the subpoena. Miller's lawyer says he and his client are willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court if it's necessary to avoid being questioned and to discredit the Mueller probe. Miller is asking for immunity from possible financial charges and threatening to invoke his Fifth Amendment right not to give self-incriminating testimony. He's been fighting Mueller's subpoena since June. The federal felony trial of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort is now in the hands of the jury after a dozen days of evidence and testimony from 27 witnesses that Manafort cheated banks and cheated the IRS. On the 11th day, Manafort's defense rested its case without calling a single witness, not even Manafort himself. Manafort's lawyers said they've already done their job through the cross-examination of witnesses, poking what they hope are holes in the prosecution's case. The judge rejected the defense's Hail Mary of asking that the case be dismissed. Manafort's lawyer's main effort 
was to try to discredit the star witness in the prosecution's case, Richard Gates, a longtime business partner of Manafort's and the man that Manafort chose to be Trump's deputy campaign manager. Rick Gates was originally charged with all the same things as Manafort, but most of those charges have now been dropped in exchange for Gates's cooperation with prosecutors. If Gates' testimony proves to be valuable, that will also be taken into consideration whenever he receives his sentence for the crime he's admitted committing. But another fascinating part of the prosecution case raised a question about another possible crime. Did Trump's campaign manager offer a high-ranking administration job to an executive at a small Chicago bank in exchange for loan approval? That bank officer, who is currently not facing charges, allegedly ignored the will of his bank's president in granting Manafort a $16 million loan. The banker, according to an email introduced into evidence, had a wish list for the jobs he would have liked to have had in the Trump administration. First on that list, Secretary of the Army. At one point, while Obama was still president, banker Stephen Koch even wrote the Defense Department asking to be briefed for a future position in the Trump administration. So Secretary of the Army was his first choice. But he had his eye on other cabinet posts in case that one didn't work out. Like... Deputy Secretary of Defense, or Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, or Secretary of Commerce, or Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, or its undersecretary. His list had eight cabinet-level jobs on it. Any of those jobs would have been fine with Koch, according to his email to Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort. And if those jobs weren't available, Koch said he'd be open to an ambassadorship, preferably to the United Kingdom, but he would have settled for France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Japan, Ireland, Australia, China, or the United Nations. But those are just his first 11 choices for an ambassadorship, assuming he didn't get one of the cabinet posts that were the eight choices before that. He would have also taken an ambassadorship to the EU, Portugal, the Vatican, Luxembourg, Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Singapore after fighting to get Trump's campaign manager a $16 million loan. Again, Chicago banker Stephen Koch has not yet been charged with any crimes, and oddly, he was not called to the stand to testify in the Manafort case. We will likely find out why at some point, perhaps in Manafort's second federal felony trial, which starts in less than a month from now. Stay tuned. And yet another fascinating aspect to the Manafort trial has been the judge, U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis III, Ellis has repeatedly criticized prosecutors in front of the jury, but late last week, Ellis instructed the jury to ignore one of his scoldings. I was critical of counsel, said the judge, for allowing an expert to remain in the courtroom. You may put that aside, he told the jury, adding, I may well have been wrong. And then adding, I was probably wrong. This robe, he continued, doesn't make me any more than human. And then he seemed to walk back some of his other scoldings of prosecutors, adding, any criticism of counsel should be put aside. It doesn't have anything to do with this case. The jury seems to have taken everything in. Many of the jurors were taking notes. The Manafort trial is the first crucial test of the Mueller investigation. If Mueller wins it, he'll have a stronger hand in Manafort's second trial and a stronger hand in getting that testimony from Trump. One by one, they have been picked off by Trump and his people, enemies, people who could hurt his presidency or his feelings. Shortly after Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates informed the White House that National Security Advisor Mike Flynn had been compromised by Russia, the Trump administration swung into action. 
but instead of immediately firing Flynn, but instead of immediately firing Flynn, he kept getting top-level security briefings while Sally Yates got fired. Federal prosecutors also began to disappear, including the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, who was investigating Trump's financial dealings. FBI Director James Comey was then reportedly asked by Trump to let go of the Flynn investigation. Comey didn't do that, and he was also fired. As Trump told Lester Holt shortly afterward, it was, quote, because of the Russia thing. The deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, was also fired, denying him of his pension after more than 20 years of service. The FBI's chief of staff was reassigned and then quit. The same for the FBI's top lawyer, its general counsel, James Baker. The deputy chief counsel was also reassigned and then quit. The FBI's director of national security, another key figure in the Russia investigation, is now leaving the FBI. Most of these people, except for Yates and Comey himself, are witnesses who can support Comey's testimony that Trump asked him to let go of the Flynn investigation. All are corroborating witnesses now pushed out of their lifelong careers as dedicated public servants, mainly because of the Russia thing. All were involved in some level of investigating Russia's attack on the U.S. and any possible links between that attack and any person or persons in the Trump campaign. As of this week, Trump now claims he never told Comey to let it go. That's new. And now there are no official witnesses to back up Comey. One by one, they've been picked off. They are now all gone except for one. There is only one remaining FBI official who can, in his official capacity, corroborate Comey's claim about Trump. And it was that official, David Bowditch, who fired Peter Strzok. Bowditch is an FBI associate deputy director, just in case his name comes up again. In the meantime, Peter Strzok's career is over, and the pension he earned in his 26 years of service are now gone. He's now started a GoFundMe page to cover his legal bills and lost income. Strzok, head of the FBI's counterintelligence unit at a crucial time, has been fired for sharing his political opinions on an FBI phone for which he has apologized and expressed regret. A thorough investigation found not a shred of evidence that Strzok's views ever affected his work, not in this case, not in any other case. And he had been immediately removed from the Mueller probe because of an appearance of a possible impropriety. Strzok was being punished according to protocol. He was suspended for two months and he was demoted. But this week, that disciplinary protocol was bypassed and ignored, and Strzok became one of five FBI officials to be fired or forced out after Republicans made struck the face of all they believe is wrong with the Russia investigation. No collusion, no obstruction, tweeted Trump, adding, I just fight back. In his testimony to Congress last month, Peter Strzok declared that Republican efforts to make an example of him are, quote, just another victory notch in Putin's belt and another milestone in our enemy's campaign to tear America apart. When Barack Obama was president, Jordanian diplomat Prince Zayed Raad al-Hussein was in regular contact with the United States while he served as the UN's Human Rights Commissioner. Since Trump took office, not so much. Al-Hussein says the UN barely even hears from the U.S. anymore. And on his way out of that diplomat job at the end of this month, the prince has a warning about Trump's attack on the free press and his lack of concern about human rights. The prince has made note each time Trump has said or repeated his claim that the press is, quote, the enemy of the people. 
Trump doubled down on that stand after it was noted those exact words had been spoken by at least two of history's most infamous dictators just before each of our two world wars. Zayed warned that Trump's words could, quote, set in motion a chain of events which could quite easily lead to harm being inflicted on journalists just going about their work. The Prince also told the Guardian newspaper that such danger could prompt journalists to censor themselves for their own protection. He said it could lead to reporters getting hurt or killed. It's getting very close, he said, to incitement of violence. Journalists were indeed physically attacked in the weekend face-offs between white nationalists and their detractors. Some so-called Antifa protesters threw eggs, water bottles, and fireworks at journalists as well as the police. In a commemorative anti-hate march in Charlottesville, one Antifa marcher shouted to the camera, F you, snitch-ass news bitch, F you, as he took swings at the camera. Another alt-right marcher shoved his hands into a camera to try to cover the lens. The war on our free press is getting as physical as the Jordanian prince had feared. L.A. Times editorial writer Brett Stevens got a voicemail that went, Hey, Brett, what do you think? Do you think the pen is mightier than the sword? Or that the AR is mightier than the pen? I don't carry an AR, continues the caller, but once we start shooting you effers, you aren't going to pop off like you do now. The caller added, the press is the enemy of the United States people. After two years of relentless floggings by Trump, the news media may be ready to fight back. Trump has called their reporting fake more than 400 times. Fake news and most recently, disgusting. The Boston Globe has so far gotten more than 350 other news outlets to join in its pushback on their editorial pages today. The Dallas Morning News and the Miami Herald, the Tampa Bay Times and the Chicago Tribune, the Des Moines Register and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Denver Post are all on board as are small weekly newspapers that only reach a couple thousand people each. But news organizations are being urged to keep their cool and just continue to report only the truth the L.A. Times, which got that AR-15 threat, says it will not participate in the newspaper's mass response to Trump's fake news claims. The Trump-supporting editorial board at the Wall Street Journal went a different way, saying the president has as much right to free speech as the media. But check your local newspaper today, where you'll find an editorial about Trump and the press. It may make you want a subscription. In the battle between Donald Trump and Robert Mueller, who's winning? According to an excellent analysis by the Washington Post, Greg Sargent, it's Mueller. Sargent used the breakdown of a new CNN poll to find out if Americans think Trump is probably guilty of wrongdoing, that the Mueller investigation is on the up and up, and that Trump ought to answer Mueller's questions, and whether they think Trump's been interfering with the investigation and lying all along. The CNN poll found that only a small minority of Americans would say no to these things, but the vast majority of the voting public would say yes. 57% of us say Trump knew his people were working with Russia versus the 26% who do not. 58% of us think this is serious stuff that should be investigated. Only 37% of us think it's just politics. 70%, 7 out of 10 of us, think Trump should testify to Mueller under oath. Only 1 in 4 of us disagrees with that. 56% of us think Trump's lying about the Russia probe. Only 37% believe he's telling the truth. 56% of us believe Trump has interfered with the investigation, while only 38% do not. 
In other words, Trump is losing every argument he's made publicly about the Russia investigation, every single one. More importantly, as we head into the midterm election season in a couple of weeks, the numbers against Trump are even worse among the independent voters who have traditionally determined these outcomes. Mueller is winning. Trump is losing. Just playing to his base, even firing up his base, doesn't appear to be enough to keep him in power. Republican candidates are expected to pay the price this fall, no matter how galvanized Trump voters are. So there's that. The importance or not of Omarosa, the biggest Catholic scandal in modern times, and stand your ground on shaky ground, along with Bob Seska and a lot more after this. Delete your Amazon links. Delete it from your favorites. Delete it from your bookmarks. Delete it on all your devices. And then go to buzzburbank.com, click on the white Amazon link in the upper right corner. You'll land on your very own Amazon page all over again. Bookmark that page. Make that page one of your favorites. Make that your bookmark. Make that link your Amazon shopping button. I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make after that, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for homeschool, church, or office. If you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. Donald Trump used the power of the presidency this week to attack an American company that's trying to protect itself from his international trade war. Trump tweeted Sunday that a boycott against Harley-Davidson would be great with an exclamation point. He was reacting to Harley's plans to, for the first time, use factories in Europe to make the bikes that'll be sold in Europe. Bikes sold in the U.S. will, as always, be made in the U.S. Harley-Davidson, like other companies, is trying to shield itself from the tariffs imposed by other countries that are retaliating against the tariffs that Trump slapped on them. Harley says it's trying to avoid losing $100 million a year to those tariffs. Now, Trump is rooting for the failure of Harley-Davidson, threatening it, perhaps, with the words, don't get cute. Trump's threats against this American icon began back in June when he wrote, it'll be the beginning of the end. Last year, Trump called Harley a true American icon, one of the greats. But then he's also turned on his own personal lawyer and former TV buddy Omarosa. We'll get back to her. Just before he took office, Trump showed up at the Carrier Furnace Factory in Indianapolis to declare he'd saved the plant from a plan to shut it down and move the jobs to Mexico. Trump had saved jobs, not as a president, but with his personality, it appeared. But for reasons beyond their control, the workers at that plant have been unable to meet the quotas they had to meet to keep their jobs. After six-day weeks that begin at 6 a.m., workers are burning out, oversleeping, taking sick leave, and just flat not showing up. 20% of them are just not showing up. Morale could not be lower at the carrier factory in Indiana. Quoting one worker, they still have the factory in Mexico and they can move down there whenever. Quoting another, I need the job, but some days you just want it to be over with. It is so depressing, you don't feel like going in. The workers now worry that absenteeism will become an excuse to shut down the factory that Trump saved. The Dow dropped another 81 points last Wednesday over the escalation of Trump's trade war with China. Immigration agents burst into a Nebraska greenhouse one week ago today, arresting more than 100 suspected undocumented workers, 133 to be exact. 
It was part of another multi-state set of raids, but one of the biggest investigations in ICE history. 17 people were arrested for exploiting these undocumented workers. But those who are suffering the most in the aftermath of these raids are the families of the workers who were taken into custody and are currently being held in a detention camp. The small town in Nebraska where most of the arrests were made has been rocked by this raid. Churches and schools have opened their doors and their wallets to assist those now abandoned families. At least three children lost both parents in that ICE raid. Some residents of Little O'Neill, Nebraska, joined in a candlelight protest outside the Immigrations and Customs Facility in Grand Island, Nebraska, on behalf of more than 100 new separated families. Eighty people protested outside the O'Neill courthouse, carrying signs including, America is for everyone. Trump is not just rounding up the criminals he claims are the target of his mass deportation. Immigration and customs data shows that federal arrests of undocumented immigrants with no criminal record have more than tripled under Trump. The arrest of non-criminal workers without papers increased by more than 200% in Trump's first 14 months in office. Over Obama's first 14 months, 200% more. And that was before Trump's zero-tolerance policy kicked in. Obama still holds the record for deporting the most people who do have criminal backgrounds or are considered a threat to national security. In the case of a mother and daughter who were separated by Trump's zero-tolerance policy, a federal judge has come down hard on the government. The judge even threatened U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions with a contempt of court ruling. The judge exploded after learning that the Trump administration had already deported the mother and daughter, put them on a plane to El Salvador before their case could be heard. The refugees were being sent to the place they had fled out of fear for their lives. Outrageous, said the judge. I'm not happy about this at all. This is not acceptable, he said. The judge ordered the government to, quote, turn the plane around. The girl and her mother never touched Salvadoran soil. Before they could disembark, the plane was refueled and returned to the U.S. That hearing continues. What Trump may not have known when he tweeted last November that chain migration had to be stopped was that chain migration is what his wife's parents were using at that time to become citizens of the United States. Melania Trump's parents from Slovenia got help in acquiring their citizenship from an attorney who prefers to call chain migration the reunification of families. Even as Melania's parents were filling out the paperwork, Trump tweeted, Chain migration must end now. Some people come in and bring their whole family with them who can be truly evil. As he blew off steam in a news conference, Trump said, you bring one person in, you end up with 30 people. He claimed that because of chain migration, a terror suspect brought in two dozen relatives into the country. The uh, Washington Post fact checkers researched that, found it to be false. Still, Trump remained laser focused on his talking point, putting an end to chain migration. Not acceptable, tweeted Trump in all caps, while his in-laws were preparing to take the oath of citizenship using chain migration. In Kansas, the governor has conceded his primary race with controversial Secretary of State Chris Kobach. Based on polling, the female Democrat running in the Sunflower State didn't stand much chance against the sitting governor. She's running neck and neck with Kobach. The very red state of Kansas appears to be considering whether it should do something it hasn't done in years, elect a Democrat. Kobach is considered beatable, despite his own efforts at voter suppression through tougher ID laws and the like. 
And Kobach's Republican Party's efforts at voter suppression continues. In Georgia, they're stripping from the registration rolls all voters whose details don't precisely match other state records. In Arizona, they're challenging the collection of absentee ballots. In North Dakota, a new voter ID law could shut out Native Americans from voting. In the Obama era, the federal government would swoop in to protect voting rights. In the Trump era, the government's doing what it can to support the state-level voter suppression moves. One order from Jeff Sessions' Justice Department required a faster purging of the voter registration rolls in Kentucky. The Trump Justice Department also helped Texas win against gerrymandering charges in the Supreme Court. As a University of Washington law professor told the New York Times, it's hard to justify some of these measures as anything but an attempt to entrench Republicans in office. The Democrats now see another opening for their intended sweep of this year's congressional races. In New York State, Republican Congressman Chris Collins has pulled out of his re-election bid after being arrested by the feds and being charged with insider trading. Collins maintains his innocence but says he dropped out to avoid hurting President Trump. Collins was the first member of Congress to endorse the Trump campaign and nominated Trump at the party's convention. His departure leaves New York Republicans scrambling for a replacement when it's already too late to remove his name from the November ballot unless he jumps to another race like town clerk. That makes his vacated congressional seat a target for Democrats on the march. Collins faces up to 150 years in prison. When history is ready to judge how Donald Trump got elected president, it will have some unusually detailed data on which we can base that conclusion. A new Pew Research study, the most detailed of its kind ever, finds that yes, it was the votes of Trump supporters and some independents and some disgruntled Democrats who either voted for him or a third-party candidate. But the study, which even confirmed that the people surveyed actually did vote, found that the credit for Trump's victory goes every bit as much to those who didn't vote. In short, it was non-voters who made Trump president. Most of them were registered to vote. They just didn't. Only about 30% of registered voters actually bothered to cast a ballot. Younger adults who are expected to make a dramatic showing this November made up two-thirds of those who didn't vote in 2016. Low-income and minority voters make up about half of those who don't vote. And a new Gallup poll shows Democrats more open to socialism than at any time in 10 years of that question being asked. Democrats have a more positive view of socialism than they do of capitalism, backing up conservative claims that Democrats have become more socialist. Democrats' approval of capitalism fell a lot in the past two years, from 56% to 47%. Gallup researchers point to the advances made by Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other socialist candidates. The shift is driven by young people. Gallup says people between the ages of 19 and 49 are the most likely to support socialist views. Between the ages of 18 and 29, even more so. More than two dozen socialist candidates have been elected as Democrats this year in towns big and small from coast to coast. Now, the fact that Trump's former TV co-star has written a book outlining his racism and mental instability isn't news. What is news is that Trump and his White House don't take security seriously, never have. That's evidence in that so many White House aides had access to highly classified information without the proper clearance, including Trump's own son-in-law. It's evidenced in Trump's continued use of an unsecured phone. 
And it was called to our attention again this week in a rather shocking way when we learned that Omarosa Manigault Newman had recorded a conversation with Trump's chief of staff in the supposedly secure situation room. A secure White House never would have allowed a recording device into that room. A normal White House wouldn't have summoned Omarosa to the sit-room to discuss a personnel matter, namely her firing. But then a normal White House wouldn't have hired Omarosa. The news is not that Omarosa was offered $15,000 a month to say nothing about Trump after her dismissal. It's that she had access to the Situation Room. That's the room in which President Kennedy strategized the Cuban Missile Crisis. He had that room created just for that. It's where President Johnson strategized the uh, Tet Offensive in Vietnam, even if Johnson did occasionally report to that room wearing his pajamas. It's the room where President Carter negotiated for the release of Americans held captive in Iran, and it's the room in which President Obama monitored the super-secret raid that captured and killed Osama bin Laden. Now, it was being used to fire a presidential aide that the White House worried would do exactly what she did, start spilling the beans. The news this week was not that Omarosa claims to have seen Trump eat a paper note so that it wouldn't go into the official presidential records. The news here is that her book and the tapes she's released prompted Trump to reveal that Omarosa had signed a non-disclosure agreement for a job in his campaign. Omarosa says it wasn't a real job, it was hush money. Fifteen grand a month, the same amount other former White House aides are being paid in exchange for their silence. Standard fee. This so-called job was hers if she would simply sign a confidentiality agreement that sought to keep her from saying anything about what went on inside the White House or saying anything bad about Trump, his family, or their businesses. Same for Vice President Mike Pence and his family. Ever. For the rest of her life. Even if the payment stopped. That's what's in the contract. Omarosa says she will not be silenced as she continues to offer evidence confirming what we already know about this president. The agreement also prohibits her from working for any other political candidate at the state or national level ever for the rest of her life. Trump says Omarosa signed the agreement. She hasn't denied that. But she says she refused that no-show job and the 15 grand a month that came with it. She says the agreement she signed was for the campaign. She says she never signed the White House version. And now that the cat is out of the bag, the White House says it no longer asks new hires to sign the thing. These non-disclosure agreements have been long thought to exist because it's what Trump the businessman had always done. The White House played it cagey for a year and a half about whether the staff had also been compelled to sign such an agreement. But here was Trump confessing to it in a tweet. Dozens of White House aides who work for the people, not for Trump, but for the people, were intimidated not to tell the taxpayers who cover their salaries what they're getting for their money. Prior to this, to our knowledge, the only non-disclosure agreements ever signed by White House employees were the ones that kept them from sharing classified information with people who don't have clearance. These NDAs were about protecting Trump and keeping everyone else in the dark, starting with the people who pay their salaries, you and me. White House lawyers led by Don McGahn had told administration aides to also sign the agreement just to keep the boss happy, while also advising them that those agreements probably wouldn't hold up in court, so they shouldn't worry about it. He's right. They won't hold up in court. But fighting those agreements in court costs money, a lot of money. And you risk getting called a dog publicly by the president. 
In those ways, the agreements are enforceable. They do what they were designed to do, intimidate. A longtime national security advisor in D.C. tells the Washington Post that silencing a federal employee would be unconstitutional. Nevertheless, the Trump campaign says it's filed an arbitration case against Omarosa for breaching her confidentiality agreement that she signed in 2016, where, quote, everyone signed one. The original White House plan, according to the Washington Post, the plan that aides had gotten Trump to agree to was to just ignore Omarosa's book when it came out. That was the plan Trump agreed. But when the excerpts about his racism and his alleged use of the N-word came out, the uh, plan changed. The White House issued a statement condemning Omarosa Manigault Newman for breaching national security. The next day, Trump told reporters she's a lowlife and a dog. And in the days that followed, Trump blasted her repeatedly on Twitter. The original White House plan was not to take Omarosa to court over this. That plan has also changed, even though that plan, this legal assault, seems doomed to failure. Also worth noting from Omarosa's recordings that the president told her he was surprised to hear she'd been fired. Trump was either lying to her or he was out of the loop. He says Chief of Staff John Kelly makes those decisions. No one even told me, says Trump on the recorded phone call, adding, I didn't know that. God damn it. End quote. Omarosa reportedly made many other recordings and will release them in stages to keep up interest and sales of her tell-all book. For a year, Omarosa was one of the highest paid people in the White House as an assistant to the president. We do not know what that job entailed, but she'd been friends with Trump for 10 years. She was one of the best people that he had promised the voters, part of Trump's starting lineup from which more than one out of two have since been replaced. Since this story broke, Trump has called Omarosa a lowlife, a dog, wacky, and a crybaby, to name a few, after praising her and giving her a cush job in the White House that was created especially for her and then keeping her on for a year because she was one of his best people. Omarosa says she has also spoken with special counsel Robert Mueller. On The Apprentice, Trump expressed his admiration for her conniving abilities. These days, not so much. It was on the set of The Apprentice where Omarosa and others confirm that Trump had behaved as a racist and misogynist and that he had, in fact, repeatedly used the N-word. His story has so far been backed up by others, celebrity contestants including Penn Jillette and Tom Arnold, that Trump said these things and that it was recorded on video. Interest in these tapes spiked after the release of the Access Hollywood recording in which Trump says he likes to grab women by their genitals. Apprentice producer Mark Burnett refuses to release any outtakes from the show and refuses to comment publicly about this. He says he cannot release them legally and that neither can Apprentice distributor MGM, insisting he has consistently supported Democratic candidates. Trump tweeted this week that Burnett had called him to say there are no such tapes. Maybe Burnett made that call. Maybe he didn't. White House spokeswoman Sarah Sanders says she cannot guarantee that no recordings exist of Trump using the N-word. But at this point, no one would be surprised if they do. Trump's revenge extends even to our nation's respected national security experts. Former CIA Director John Brennan, who's criticized Trump's policies and methods, has now been stripped of his security clearance. Trump ordered it so, even though former national security officials are usually kept in the loop so they can advise their replacements, especially in a crisis when minutes count. Trump did this without consulting or even notifying his own national security officials who may have been relying on Brennan and others for guidance. 
In a written statement, Trump said Brennan's clearance was because of, quote, the risk posed by his erratic conduct and behavior. No specific accusations, nothing about security being breached or rules being broken, just criticism of Trump. It was a way of punishing some of his critics and a warning to other critics. Brennan had called Trump treasonous after the Helsinki news conference in which Trump expressed more confidence in the word of Vladimir Putin than in the words of U.S. intelligence. Trump may also be trying to distract people away from Omarosa and away from the Manafort trial. It would seem so since the revocation announcement made yesterday was dated July 26th, more than three weeks ago, just waiting for the right moment to be released. But Brennan, like Omarosa, says he will not be silenced. Brennan still knows what he knows and intends to keep talking. The White House had previously announced that Trump was looking to also strip those clearances from others, including James Comey and other officials who served in both the Bush and Obama administrations. Those others include former Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, former FBI agent Peter Strzok, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, as well as Obama officials Susan Rice and former National Intelligence Director James Clapper. House Speaker Paul Ryan brushed off Trump's decision, saying, I think he's trolling people, honestly. But to Salon.com's Bob Seska, it sounds more like an enemy's list. Thank you, Buzz. Former CIA Director John Brennan isn't the first official to be punished by Donald Trump for being mean to Donald Trump, and he won't be the last. In fact, Trump's wrath will only expand from here unless he's stopped by impeachment, resignation, or the 2020 election. Trump rescinded Brennan's security clearance because Trump is a petty little turd. A vindictive man-toddler who wrongfully believes presidential powers were designed as a salve for his fragile ego rather than a means by which to serve the American people. It turns out Trump revoked Brennan's clearance due to, quote, risks posed by his erratic conduct and behavior. Not only did Trump punish a critic, he punished a critic while gaslighting the rest of us at the same time by accusing Brennan of exactly the kind of behavior we've all observed from Trump countless times a day, the very behavior that makes Trump himself a horrible president and a massive national security liability. Sarah Sanders told reporters, quote, Mr. Brennan's lying and recent conduct characterized by increasingly frenzied commentary is wholly inconsistent with access to the nation's most closely held secrets and facilitates the aim for our adversaries, which is to sow division and chaos. Replace Brennan with Trump and it makes sense. Seriously now. Here we are with a president who's easily the most erratic, easily the most incompetent, easily the most compromised, and easily the most damaging to national security of any president in recent memory, punishing other officials because he says they're being erratic and a threat to national security. In other words, the very behavior that Trump has repeatedly rejected outright, the presidential voice, is the behavior he expects from everyone else. This is like punishing someone for smoking and telling all of your disciples how smoking is disgusting and stupid, while you yourself are smoking an entire pack of unfiltered luckies, two or three of them a day. Nevertheless, we shouldn't be surprised that President Spazzy and all of his fanboys hold everyone else to standards of decency and decorum that Trump openly rejects. So it's not even Trump's behavior the Red Hats seem to like. It's Trump himself, as if we needed more evidence that it's all a big cult. After Trump illustrated for the world how petty and childish he truly is, Brennan responded on Twitter with a salient warning, quote, 
This action is part of a broader effort by Mr. Trump to suppress freedom of speech and punish critics. It should gravely worry all Americans, including intelligence professionals, about the cost of speaking out. My principles are worth far more than clearances. I will not relent, unquote. This isn't the beginning of Trump's descent toward despotism, but it's another gigantic red flag confirming many of our greatest fears about his presidency and how he intends to maintain power. He started with the firing of James Comey, then followed later with the firing of Andrew McCabe, a matter of days before his pension was due to fully vest. And then there's Peter Strzok, who was fired in defiance of at least two internal Department of Justice reviews of his conduct. Indeed, there will be many more law enforcement and intelligence community officials and agents who will be punished if not entirely disappeared by Trump. The president even named some of the villains on his enemies list. Quote, as part of the review, I am evaluating action with respect to the following individuals. James Clapper, James Comey, Michael Hayden, Sally Yates, Susan Rice, Andrew McKay, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, and Bruce Orr. Unquote. All familiar names from Trump's tweets. As Brennan predicted, these names are just the beginning. Trump will use the cockamamie deep state coup conspiracy theory as a pretext for consolidating his power. It'll start with firings and other snippy trespasses like revoking more clearances. And then when that doesn't fully shield Trump from accountability and, you know, the law, he'll start arresting people. He'll start arresting Justice Department people and expand his reach to the Defense Department and eventually to journalists. Trump knows that in America, you have to ease into autocracy to mitigate any outrage. So he'll take a boiled frog approach by taking his time. But before we know it, Trump will have dispatched an entire roster of enemies, further emulating his hero and benefactor, Mr. Putin. In reality, back here on Earth One, every last human being on Trump's enemies list has acted as respectable, patriotic public servants with a sense of priorities and maturity, traits that Donald Trump will never possess, not even if he tries. Their only crimes are to speak poorly of this horrendously dangerous president. Think about that. If he's willing to go this far, consider whether his administration will think twice before locking up ordinary citizens, members of the resistance who he decides on a whim are also erratic and national security threats. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment for now. Perhaps we'll have adjacent cells. Thank you, Bob. It was, by the way, 47 years ago today that the White House lawyer John Dean wrote a memo establishing Richard Nixon's enemies list, a list that was grounds for Nixon's impeachment. A list, as Dean wrote, to, quote, use the existing machinery of government to screw our enemies. You can get more of Bob Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob, I have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Twitter has finally suspended alt-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, but only for seven days. Jones had already been booted off Facebook, iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. Twitter suspended the InfoWars founder's account after he tweeted a link to a video calling on his supporters to get their battle rifles ready against the media. Twitter said that violates its rules about inciting violence. See also above story about Trump's war on the press. Jones is among those perpetrating the hoax that 9-11, the Sandy Hook massacre of young children, and the Parkland, Florida massacre of high school students were all staged. A thousand identified children were sexually abused by more than 300 identified Catholic priests for more than 70 years, and that's just in Pennsylvania. 
and these are just the cases we know about. After a year and a half long grand jury investigation, the grand jury says there are probably thousands of other victims. The biggest investigation ever of sexual abuse by priests has revealed the biggest American priest scandal ever. The grand jury's report says, quote, priests were raping little boys and little girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all. A priest removed for being a legal liability was encouraged into his new career by a job recommendation from the parish, a recommendation that landed him a new job at a Disney park. The investigation focused on the diocese in Pittsburgh, Scranton, Harrisburg, Erie, Greensburg, and Allentown, and included over two million documents from the church's secret archives. The numbers are staggering and the details are horrifying and not for young ears. Hit pause now if you need to or turn down the sound for the next 30 seconds. A 14-year-old boy was raped so brutally he suffered back injuries that led to a painkiller addiction that then led to his own death by overdose. A 7-year-old boy was abused by a priest who then instructed him to go to confession and to repeat his sins to that same priest. One boy in Pittsburgh was forced to pose as a naked Christ on a cross while priests took Polaroid pictures. The priest plural gave the boy a gold cross to wear so he and the other abused boys with those crosses could easily be identified by other pedophile priests. And these are not the worst stories. I'll spare you the others here. But as the grand jury wrote in its report, it needs to be said. Criminal charges will be filed subsequent to the grand jury's investigation, but many of these priests have since died, and the statute of limitations prevents the prosecution of some others. There's now new talk of rewriting those statutes, and lawmakers are motivated, led by State Representative Mark Rossi, who says he was raped by a priest in his Berks County Catholic school, as was a friend of his who committed suicide just eight years ago. The Pennsylvania investigation traced the abuse and cover-ups all the way to the Vatican, which so far has no comment. And these are just the cases we know about. And this is about just six dioceses in Pennsylvania. One state, not including Philadelphia. Hot enough for you? I'm not talking about today's local weather. I'm talking about the climate. Phoenix lost 155 people to the heat last summer as the planet gets warmer. All but three of those people were Arizona natives. Maricopa County now spends two-thirds of the year at or above highs of 100. They lost 70 people this year in Montreal. Philadelphia now spends 100 days each year at or above highs of 90 degrees, more than twice as many days as it did just 18 years ago. In Europe, nuclear reactors were shut down this summer because the water in the ground was no longer cool enough to cool the nuclear reactor core. There have been dozens of deaths in Japan from the heat. Worldwide, it's the fourth hottest year on record, beaten only barely by the three years before this one. It got so hot in Phoenix this year, planes couldn't take off. Will people someday have to abandon places like Phoenix? Quoting an epidemiologist at Brown University, there's a point at which the human body cannot cool itself, which means you're either in an air-conditioned space or you're having serious health problems. Some places in the U.S., he says, will get to that point, adding the way we live, work, and play will be altered by rising temperatures. A new study says it doesn't cool off at night the way it used to and that the hottest days of summer could be a full 15 degrees hotter, driving thousands of people to emergency rooms. 
the cities we have built didn't and couldn't have anticipated this, and they will suffer the most with all that concrete and steel and all those people all packed so tightly together. It's not a wake-up call anymore, says a climatologist at NASA who adds, it's now absolutely happening to millions of people around the world. And scientists say this is just the start of it, that this isn't the new normal because it will get worse without quick and decisive action. And just as there is no coordinated effort to fight Russian election interference, so it goes currently for this country's battle against climate change, a battle officially suspended by the fossil fuel-favoring Trump administration. Trump's Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke this past week said the blame for California's longer and more violent wildfire season falls not on climate change, but on environmentalists. Zinke called environmental groups radical and insisted they should not control the conversation about climate change. He says their campaign against logging and deforestation have literally added fuel to those fires. Trump himself joined in on Twitter saying the fires are made worse by, quote, bad environmental laws, along with the false claim that California was diverting valuable firefighting water into the Pacific Ocean. It isn't. Firefighters say a lack of water is not the problem. In Florida, dead algae blooms have brought what's known as a red tide from the southern tip of the state northward along its Gulf Coast. The algae is created by fertilizer runoff, including that caused by the release of lake water to prevent flooding. It's made worse by hot weather and a warmer planet. It's killing sea life and tourism. Insects swarm above the rotting fish carcasses in thick green water. Sanibel Island, known for its long white sand beaches, stinks now from dead fish at a time when families usually go there for a last run at summer vacation. Crews have scurried to clean up the mess, but tourists are staying away nonetheless. Officials in Puerto Rico admitted this week that the original official death count from Hurricane Maria was not 64. Those officials now say the death count is 1,427. George Washington University researchers helped officials in Puerto Rico find the correct number after the original count of 64 had been called into question by reporters. Many of the victims died of bacterial infection from a lack of clean drinking water. Many died in hospitals and other care facilities when the island-wide power failure shut off their oxygen and other medical equipment. And the ocean temperature in the Atlantic is one degree cooler this year, which has forecasters saying there's a 60% chance this year will be more quiet than usual when it comes to hurricanes. After last year's assault on Puerto Rico, Texas, Florida, and elsewhere, we could all use the break for as long as it lasts. The current hurricane season lasts through the end of September. Missouri is a pro-labor state no matter what the Republican lawmakers that elected have to say. Last year, the Show Me State's legislature passed a right-to-work law that restricted the power of unions there. Union workers could then be fired more easily. Grievances became harder to file. Union work during work hours was more limited. And non-union workers no longer had to pay dues to the union that had won them their benefits. Last week, Missouri voters struck down that law. Florida's shoot-first, ask-questions-later law, known as Stand Your Ground, is under more scrutiny than ever. And the white man who shot to death an unarmed black man over a parking space in Clearwater now faces manslaughter charges that could land him in prison for 30 years. At first, he faced no charges. The Pinellas County Sheriff determined that 48-year-old Michael Draca had acted in self-defense and was therefore protected by Florida's controversial law. The district attorney took a different view and had Draca arrested for manslaughter 
on a $100,000 bond. As it turns out, Mr. Draca has a history of road rage and a history of threatening people. Florida is not alone in this one, even if it led the way. Stand-your-ground laws have been foisted upon nearly two dozen other states by the National Rifle Association, which remains under federal investigation. But it started in Florida, which has for years now been the NRA's testing ground. It was Florida that gave us the Trayvon Martin case, and now this one. And with the massacre at Stoneman Douglas High School just six months behind us now, Florida's never been more ripe to dump Stand Your Ground. Meanwhile, keep an eye on this late-breaking development. Russia's Vladimir Putin says he's ready to meet with Kim Jong-un, quote, at an early date to discuss urgent issues of bilateral relations and important matters of the region. Stay tuned. Not the Starfleet you signed up for. The trouble with parasites. Pass the salt and stop or you'll go blind. In the third and final segment, up next. Hey, stop spending restless nights flipping and reshaping your pillow to get cool and dry. Wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Sleep on a hollow pillow. The hollow pillow stays cool while giving your head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. Now, a lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses but still hadn't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight. They don't give you a full night's support that you need for good posture and good sleep. And you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot, gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into hollows, pre-shrunken, certified organic unbleached cotton twill casing, and all of that's done right here in the U.S. Hullo pillows breathe and stay cool, and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hullo pillow by removing or adding more holes through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I am so happy with mine after well over a year of using it every night. I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement. I'm also proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hello pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going to hollowpillow.com slash buzz. That's hollowpillow.com slash buzz. If you had trouble getting in with the old code, please try again using B-U-Z-Z. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hollowpillow.com slash buzz. As today's show was being edited, we learned that singer Aretha Franklin has died at home in Detroit at age 76. Ms. Franklin had a string of top 40 hits, including Respect, Think, and Natural Woman, but she was a gospel singer and a soul singer and the queen of soul. She also stood for black pride and the liberation of women with one of the greatest singing voices we have ever heard. Miss Aretha Franklin, gone at 76, long live the queen. There will be no Starfleet, and the Prime Directive won't be what you've been hoping for. America's new Space Force, if it comes to pass, is about taking the wars of this planet and spreading them into space. Congress will have to sign off on this, and it's not clear if it will. It's going to cost a lot of money. A lot of money. Vice President Mike Pence pointed to China and Russia when he vowed to have war machines in space within the next two years. Strictly for defense, of course, claiming our enemies have gotten a head start. 
Space Force all the way, tweeted Trump excitedly with an exclamation point. The Air Force already has a Space Command headquartered in Colorado Springs, manned by about 38,000 people. Space Force, a sixth branch of the military for the five-sided Pentagon to manage. The more peaceful, the more civilian agency known as NASA, meanwhile, is driving straight into the blinding sun. The Parker Solar Probe, with the toughest heat shields ever, is headed directly into the sun to study it, especially its corona, the aura around it. The probe's named after a scientist named Parker, now 91 years old, who theorized that much like the flame on a match, the hottest part of the sun is at the tip of the flames, the outer layer of that corona. This difficult 90 million mile mission got off to a very smooth start and a successful start last week, the probe now cruising on its own power toward the sun. It will arrive to a temperature of 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly 4 million miles above the sun's surface. That doesn't sound very close unless you're talking about the sun. There, it will study electrons, protons, ions, and solar winds, which often affect communications here on Earth. The more we know. A panel of federal judges has now scolded both Republicans and Democrats for not doing this already, as he banned a pesticide that's used in our food. Chlorpyrifos can damage the human brain and nervous system, and it's used on more than 50 fruit, nut, and grain crops, including apples, almonds, oranges, and broccoli. 640,000 acres of California farmland has been treated with the stuff. Health officials have been asking for this ban for 11 years. Thanks to this judge, they finally got it. DuPont says it will continue to supply the chemical to its customers in 78 other countries. The count is up past 450 now on the number of people made sick by salads from McDonald's. That's 41 more people just in the past week. No one's died, but 20 people went to hospitals. There have been 200 cases in Illinois alone after eating salads that contained a parasite. That parasite leaves a person with flu-like symptoms and a whole range of digestive issues. McDonald's quickly removed the contaminated lettuce mix from its 3,000 locations and distribution centers, but since the illness can take weeks to develop, those numbers could still go higher. Britain's Ben Taylor couldn't get any answers for the bizarre symptoms he was experiencing. He got blinding headaches, he felt a small muscle in his forehead snap, his joints ached all over, he got itchy rashes, and he sank into a depression so deep he contemplated suicide. He was always hungry, but didn't gain weight no matter how much he ate. Lumps would appear on his skin and then disappear. Doctors confirmed his low white cell count, but could not find a cause. One morning, he spotted a yellow lump out of the corner of his left eye. And then that eye began to vibrate as if... He rushed to the mirror and saw that the lump was gone, but that there was a thin line on his eye. And when he touched that line, it moved. I got a worm in my eye, he exclaimed as he rushed to the hospital. With a scalpel, a doctor cut away at the outer layer of Ben's eye and pulled out a wriggly parasite known as a loa loa also known as the African eye worm, which Ben had picked up when he trekked through the jungles of the Central African nation of Gabon, where this parasite runs rampant. Parasitic infections are known to sometimes change a person's behavior and even their personality. A week in the hospital for Ben turned up two more parasites, hookworms and roundworms, that he had picked up in his world travels years ago. Ben is now worm-free, able to finish a painting. He at first wasn't sure why he started, Originally, it was just a circle covered with squiggly lines. 
He now realizes he was drawing his own eye. That's what he was painting. But he's giving the creative credit to the parasites. Another Brit, a woman, had an eyelid that was lumpy and painful. As it turns out, it was a contact lens, a soft contact, a type of lens that she had stopped wearing 28 years ago. The gas permeable lens was dislodged when she got hit in the eye with a shuttlecock at the age of 14. She thought she had lost the contact. As it turns out, she's had it all this time. Last year, British doctors found 27 soft contacts in the eyes of another British woman, 10 in one eye, 17 in the other. She says she thought she'd just lost them while struggling to put them in. If you don't stop it, you'll go blind. Most of us, with the occasional exception of the president, try to avoid looking directly into the sun, but we stare at our cell phones and computer screens for hours, and although that doesn't compare to the sun, your computer gives off the same blue light as the sun. So does your phone, ultraviolet light. And that blue light can accelerate blindness, according to a new study from a university in Ohio. Blue light damages the retina and kills photoreceptor cells that cannot be replaced when they die. That leads to macular degeneration, which all of us experience as we get older. Blue light from our devices speeds up the process, and even the youngest children are using these devices now. The good news is this research could lead to eye drops to help filter the blue light. In the meantime, the researchers recommend you wear ultraviolet filtering glasses when using a device and to not stare at those devices in the dark. iPhones have a night shift button that reduces the blue light. Otherwise, lights out now also include your digital screens. Pass the salt, please. A new study by researchers in 21 countries says moderate salt consumption will not hurt your health or your heart. The study says keep it under two and a half teaspoons a day unless you also have fruits, vegetables, dairy, potatoes, and other foods that have a lot of potassium. Cardiologists know a healthy heart requires a balance of sodium versus potassium. The more bananas you eat, the more you can go over that two and a half teaspoon limit. That's nearly double the limit recommended by the American Heart Association. But again, this new study was a joint effort by 21 countries. Our doctors may have some thoughts on this. The decision is ultimately ours. Will North Dakota become the 10th state to legalize recreational marijuana? A college student there has rounded up a thousand more signatures than he needed to get the question on the ballot. If that happens, it'll likely pass since North Dakotans overwhelmingly already approved medical marijuana nearly two years ago. North Dakota law enforcement is speaking out against the proposal saying that legalization will cause a rise in other crimes. Maybe it was the weed that made The Meg the number one movie in North America over the weekend. Expected to be a flop, this killer shark movie, The Meg, scored a $45 million take in its opening weekend and another $97 million in the rest of the world, half of that $97 million in China. The partially computer-animated movie was made in China. Mission Impossible Fallout fell to second in its second week, but with a solid $20 million. Christopher Robin was third. The low-budget Slender Man was fourth. Spike Lee's Black K.K. Klansman was fifth. Already his most successful film in a decade. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. 
It may be too little too late, but the Oscar people are trying to get you to watch their award show again. Viewership dropped like a rock in recent years. Last year was the lowest on record. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says it has a plan to attract more viewers, to absolutely positively limit the telecast to three hours, and to add a category for achievement in popular film. In other words, all those Spider-Man, Batman, and other action movies typically passed over will finally get a chance to win something, even if it's never been the Academy's idea of greatness. And it is the first new category the 91-year-old Academy's added since Best Animated Feature Film 17 years ago. They will accomplish this newfound brevity by handing out some awards during the commercials, which is the part that ABC cares about, and then show brief clips from those presentations later. And this year, the Oscars will air on February 9th, six days after the Super Bowl. The Oscars often considered the Super Bowl of movies since it, too, has traditionally been a magnet for advertisers. Look at the time. Even I should have been played off by now. And speaking of time, how's four minutes when a San Diego woman realized her $30,000 diamond ring had accidentally been thrown in the trash and that the trash truck had already carried it away, she was uh, pessimistic. Even more so when she learned that the truck had already unloaded at the dump. There was, as sometimes happens, a grand search by the sanitation workers, even knowing that sometimes they never find the thing they're looking for. But they did find this woman's ring after a search that lasted four minutes. It took only four minutes to find a diamond in a dump. Quoting a spokesman for the city, that was pretty good. Jesse swears a lot, a lot. Firefighters in London discovered this firsthand as they tried to rescue Jesse from the roof of a house where she'd been stuck for three days. Jesse got up there by flying up there. Jesse is a macaw that escaped from its owner who lives in the house next door. The owner tried to rescue Jesse herself, but neither she nor the local SPCA had any luck. So they rang up the fire brigade. Quoting a firefighter, we were told that to bond with the parrot, you have to tell her I love you, which is exactly what the crew manager did. He says Jesse returned the greeting and kept talking, and that included a lot of swearing also. The owner had also taught the firefighters how to speak to Jesse in Turkish and Greek because the bird speaks those languages too. There was great concern that the macaw had somehow gotten injured in this adventure, but that was relieved when Jesse left the firefighters and flew to another neighbor's roof. The dutiful public servants then moved their ladder truck and finally captured the bad bird and returned it to its equally colorful owner. The firefighters may have done a bit of swearing that day as well. And finally, Los Angeles police investigators are studying a viral video that shows a man jumping into the hippopotamus exhibit at the zoo, slapping a hippo on the butt, and then quickly running away. In the video, the hippo seems completely unfazed by the entire incident. Hippos are very tough. Or maybe they just get that a lot. But that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.